We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmala Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. I had the pleasure of speaking with Abital Chizek Goldschmidt, who is a talented journalist with articles in many prestigious publications, including the New York Times, Glamour Magazine, Business Insider, Haaretz, and more. Abital joined me today to share her story of growing up with parents who were Russian immigrants, how the Russian culture and growing up different from her peers affected her and helped cultivate the decisions she made later on in life. She shared her family's journey in becoming religious as she grew up and the significance of how they grew in their observance together as a family. Abital also spoke about prevalent issues in the community and shared messages that she wants to convey to the Orthodox community of how to improve situations, including cultivating a community that fosters creativity and creating female thought leaders in the Orthodox community and making that the norm. Abital shared where most of her inspiration from her stories come from, as well and behind the scenes of the world of journalism. I can't wait for you to hear her story and learn something from her absolutely refreshing perspective on life. I grew up in Highland Park, New Jersey, also known as Edison, sort of interchangeable. Uh, my parents are immigrants from the Soviet Union, so I grew up speaking Russian at home um, with a very strong sort of like Russian culture. And my parents were also becoming religious as I was growing up. So um, I can't say like, I grew up in, you know, my, my parents were very much on a journey uh, into religious observance. So uh, they sent us always to religious day schools, me and my three younger sisters. Um, we always went to yeshiva day school, but we never, you know, it took it took years for us to really sort of uh, learn all the uh, all the laws, all the customs, uh, all the ways. You know, sort of like the, the little unspoken rules and religious communities, all that type of stuff that sort of came with the years. Um, I remember when we started keeping Shabbat, um, I was, I don't remember, maybe like five or six years old. Um, and I remember sort of as the years went by, we became more observant. Um, I had a pretty otherwise kind of typical modern Orthodox upbringing in suburban New Jersey. Um, I always loved to write. I was Literally, since the day I could fill a notebook, I did. I had many little novels and poems written um, about whatever was on my mind from the age of six or seven. Um, and I, as I grew older, I started really sort of focusing on that writing, on publishing, on applying to contests. And uh, high school, I did a bunch of sort of very big national competitions in writing. Um, and I was lucky to have gotten some awards there, which really sort of, I think, was really important for me at that time because it boosted my self-confidence, my, you know, my my image of myself as, wow, maybe I really could be a real writer. 
Um, even if I am like, you know, a daughter of immigrants and like religious and all that, maybe I can make it in the world of sort of big writing. So I went to an all-girls high school and then I went to Stern College at Yeshiva University, uh, which is where I studied journalism. And yeah, it was really just like always an avid reader, an avid writer. I think a lot of my upbringing was very much shaped by being different, being a child of immigrants, being um, sort of getting used to that. It really built, I think, a lot of uh, a thick skin over the years, uh, ability to sort of stand up for myself and be okay with being different. It wasn't always comfortable, but it was just who I was. Uh, and I also think that the Russian culture had a very big influence on me uh, growing up because I was always reading like my parents and my grandparents would always give me Russian poetry and Russian literature, fiction. And I was watching, you know, sort of artsy films, all these sorts of high culture um, I was consuming at home, which wasn't, I think, the norm necessarily in the community I was living in. But my my family was sort of came from an intelligentsia family in the Soviet Union, and it was very important for them to give that over. Right. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you how the Russian culture affected you. But now that makes sense because there is a, a certain sophistication and artsiness that that you really were brought up with already as you were becoming religious. So that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it was a huge part of my upbringing. Like I just, you know, I was I was not how to put this, you know, I wasn't raised reading the typical sorts of like religious kids books or something. Like my parents literally gave me a war and peace at the age of 12 to read. Um, and not that I was so smart. I just, that was sort of like the expectation and the expectation was that you excel and that you, even if it's difficult, you try hard. Um, you try to be the best person that you can be. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So I've heard like different children of immigrants having different experiences, you know, growing up in, in the U.S. Yeah. What was your experience like? And mm-hmm. like, how did it affect you? Maybe growing up, going to school with friends, being a part of the community, like the nuances, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, I was sort of like, I was like a nerdy kid. I was not, you know, I didn't have a million friends for sure. My parents were very not, like they were very much their own people. They were not they're not conformist in any way. They just do their own thing, which isn't easy, I think, as a kid growing up because you just like want to be like everyone else. And, you know, again, we were not American and we were also not particularly, you know, knowledgeable and religious observance, which was very much the norm in the community I was growing up in. But that doesn't, you know, I, again, I really think it built me um, to be a person who's okay with being different, um, to embrace not being that cookie cutter kid. What else? I mean, it it also gave me a, a view of the world that was kind of broader. You know, my world view was not just about, you know, New Jersey and like maybe New York City being the like epicenter of the world. It was, yeah, Jersey and New York City on weekends. But I grew up in the stories of, you know, the entire Soviet Union and also the immigration process that my parents went through with their parents through Vienna, Austria, through Italy, right? Uh, I grew up with a very, again, a very big emphasis on culture. So, you know, there was this obsession with the arts, this obsession with the theater, with opera, with ballet. Um, 
was studying mathematics, even though I didn't do too well. But all these things were really sort of very, almost like a religion of its own um, in my family. And I think that, you know, it's, I think it's largely unique to Russian culture and Russian Jewish culture. Uh, but it was, it, it was definitely felt like I was living a very different childhood than the other kids I was friends with. Um, just because, you know, it wasn't going to the ball game or something on Sunday or to the mall. Like my parents were dragging me to an art museum. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's so interesting growing up like that. Wow. But I totally get that. I mean, I have some friends who are, they're not the children of immigrants, but they're actually are immigrants themselves. Like they came here as children. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and they're very much like that. It's interesting seeing the culture for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's what it's like. And I'm so grateful for it. I hope I can give that to my kids too. Right. And yeah, I mean, and growing up as, you know, you said that you started keeping uh, Shabbat at, at about five or six. Mm-hmm. So that was a, like an evolution, really, that you went through with your parents while still retaining that that background, that Russian culture background. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was sort of like two immigrations. There was, was an immigration to American culture. Um, and then there was an immigration to, um, you know, to the religious culture. And it was not easy because I think people I think people naturally tend to not know what to do with someone who's different so I you know I think there was this sort of it, the community didn't know what to do with the Russians um but it was a very healthy journey I think to religion my parents were not ever people who sort of went cold turkey I think some people tend to do that uh in sort of in their searches for meaning my parents are very um educated and very sort of these rational people who went through a very sort of step-by-step process into becoming religiously observant. So I remember like when I was five or six or so, we started keeping Shabbat. And then, you know, there were also gradations within Shabbat observance. Um, and that sort of grew over the years. And then there was, um, I don't know, I remember like when I was eight, I think we put up our first sukkah, which is like the hut that we put up in the backyard for Sukkot, the holiday. Um, so that was sort of, that was a very big step. I felt like, wow, now we're really religious, you know, but that, like those sorts of things. And then I remember at one point I said to my mother, you know, I think we should really use a tablecloth on Shabbat. Like it elevates the dinner, you know, um, like we were keeping Shabbat already, but we didn't really like know about the spirit of it as much. Right. So all those sorts of things. Um, it was very, very gradual. Right. I, I love how your parents were gradual about it because that that really brings like a healthy aspect to it as opposed to just jumping in full force and maybe resenting things at the end or making their kids resent it, you know? So that's cool. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I also always felt because it was gradual, I I remember some of those moments and I felt like I was part of, I felt personally, I don't know if my sisters had the same experience, but I felt like I was choosing it with my parents. You know, for me, it was, like, I, in one hand, I feel like, you know, I definitely grew up religious. I went to day school and all that. But on the other hand, our observance grew over the years. So, like, you know, and I, and I feel, felt like I chose it with them. I went on that journey with them. Right. And that makes total sense. Right. Because you did. I mean, you were literally mm-hmm. a child. So that's cool. And it yeah. sounds like you also yeah. had influence on your parents. Yeah. Yeah. My, my husband always says that, you know, usually the older generations teach the younger generations. But with the Russian, the Russian Jewish story is the younger teach the older. Um, and that's definitely true. And my family, I think, and many others, 
Um, but it's, it's, you know, I was, I was proud of it. I loved Judaism. I loved, I loved every aspect of it. I loved prayer. I loved learning. I loved, I, I read voraciously about everything to do with Judaism. I remember at a very young age, I was already reading like my parents' books that they were sort of trying to follow as they were studying. And I would just, as, as a small, as a young child, I was already reading them. Like I really was so curious about Jewish history and Jewish texts. Um, like Yiddish literature, I, I read it in translation, but you know, all those aspects, I really was fascinated and excited to inherit this rich heritage. That's beautiful. It really is. When you approach something like that, I mean, that's the way to do it. Seriously. Yeah. I think a lot of it also comes from the Russian piece where like when you come from a background, which has such a very recent memory of persecution and you know you were persecuted for being who you were you finally when you're free you want to figure out like so who am i so what were we persecuted for what was it all worth you know for sure yes do you think that your background of you know coming from russian background and then being raised religious impacted how you're able to combine the two worlds of secular journalism with being an orthodox jewish woman yeah, definitely. For me, it was never a question, for sure, is because of, I guess, maybe like that Russian piece. Like, I, for me, the worldly high level culture, not like, I'm not talking about like lowbrow culture, but like high level culture and art that asks questions and that probes and make us, makes us think, uh, goes hand in hand to my mind with the religious life, which is the pursuit of truth and meaning, right? Um, both are sorts of passions. I don't equate the two, obviously. I think, you know, religion for me is, is, goes much deeper, but, but I don't, I'm grateful I don't have to choose between the two. I really, I really believe that culture and in my specific case, writing and journalism and literature can enhance one's service of God. For sure. And it's so interesting because you're one of the only people who I know who are who are able to do that, to combine the two worlds so effortlessly. Or it seems like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Listen, I think I, Rabbi Sachs has this great line where I, I'm not going to do it justice, but he talks about how one of the challenges of our, you know, our time is that the religious community, I'll put it this way, needs the confidence to put itself, you know, forward. And that is to say that if you are really confident in your faith, if you're confident in your religious identity and in your observance, it should not come into conflict with engagement with the outside world, right? Like, I don't feel a need to to defend or or sort of isolate myself or, you know, totally, you know, close the world off because my religious identity and observance is precarious. It's not. It's, it's strong. Like, I'm proud of it, right? Like, that's not my concern. Um, and I think that's something that we, you know, I wish was more common. I feel like for people, a lot of times they need to sort of go to absolute um, and extreme sometimes in order to lead religious lives. And I feel bad for them because I think, you know, I think they, there is a way of, of, of balancing. Right. I see that a lot. I see that a lot of, a lot of Orthodox Jewish women, I think that they feel that they have to go in a certain direction yeah. when it comes to career 
and they have a harder time looking outside the box yeah and saying like like instead instead of doing what they think they have to do they it would be really nice if people could start looking inside and figuring out what drives them what lights them up yeah and then to go for that and to be who they are with within whatever environment right they're working in right so i think i think the truth is the struggle with that is unique to the orthodox community i think other communities also struggle with this is that it's not just about the women it's just you know i think they're they operate in systems that discourage certain passions or certain pursuits right whether overtly or or subtly right like i remember when i was 20 years old and i was I was dating and I wanted to <coughs> be a serious writer. Um, I was 21 when I started writing for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Uh, I was writing in English, but I was writing on New York events and goings on and different reporting and op-eds or whatever, reviews. And I remember getting a lot of pushback from people in the religion in my community right in the religious community who are like very uncomfortable with the idea of an orthodox woman writing a young orthodox woman an unmarried orthodox woman be working in um in media and secular liberal media um even though i believe that that was where i could have much more impact right i didn't want to go to a place where i'd be preaching to the choir um and i also wanted to be in a place where i'd be really uncensored so i was you know, happy with my choice. But people, they were, they were really shocked by it. And it was sort of like, it's not refined or it's too visible. It's too out there. And how are you ever going to get married? That was a very big um, pressure on me. But I, you know, and, and again, and coming from my background, like I didn't, my parents were newcomers to this community. So for them, they really, they supported me and backed me always, but I didn't really have like, strong network to rely on in terms of saying like yes this is right keep going um but i still did it right i still did it um there were definitely quite some hurdles but overall there was there was a lot of i would say determined from from pursuing that um and and i wish it didn't have to be that way like i yeah i don't want to be an accountant i don't want to be a therapist i don't want to be an english teacher this is like actually what i want to do um, so I, I really, I wish we would see more religious women doing, you know, following the dreams. I think we really are. I think we, the, the last 10 years has changed dramatically. I think social media has changed our realities in so many ways where we can build platforms of our own, um, and, you know, try our hands at things that were previously unavailable to us. For sure. Yes, definitely. I was actually going to ask you if you've seen firsthand how that's how things have changed and even like the attitude people have towards what you, towards you and what you do. Yeah, um, a lot of attitude. I think people are at this point in, in the religious community, and I wonder if it's true in other religious communities. I think people are generally fine with women being sort of visible online as long as it's sort of within a certain parameter. So like you know, if you're, if you're in fashion, if you're in marketing, if you're in events, if you're, you know, there are certain industries that are like, okay, and you're doing it for business, and that's okay. But the moment that you're like an actual like opinion maker, the moment that you're actually commenting on community politics and religion, that's like the big no-no. That's where you really can't go. Um, so, you know, I I think our community is beautifully diverse and heterogeneous and there are many, as many people as there are out there who are critics, there are many great supporters and 
people, I think, looking for thoughtful critique and analysis of community life. Um, but certainly there's, I don't think we're at the point yet where it's like kind of normal to have female thought leaders in the community. Right. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, that's a really great way of putting it for sure. It's not like normal yet. right? <laughs> yeah, it's like you're still, it's still a little bit weird. And it's fine. Like, it, it'll change. It's going to change, but it just takes time. Right, right. And first of all, I appreciate and I'm sure a lot of women appreciate that you are a thought leader in the community. So that's kudos to you for doing that. Thanks. I don't know if I would, I don't want to dub myself that at this point. I think like I'm too young and I don't know if I, I'm not that important, but, um, but I think it's really, it's very important that we do have some women who are stepping up and saying, okay, I am, um, you know, I'm going to, have an opinion and I'm going to be vocal about it. And we certainly do have women who are doing that and specifically using social media as that platform because there's nowhere really else to go, right? It's not like our publications in the community are going to publish, um, you know, sort of hot takes about these things. So uh, so I think we're, we're seeing a big change. It's just it's taking a little bit of time, but I'm very optimistic about um, what, you know, I guess the millennial slash Gen Z generation is bringing for sure. Yes. I think, I think a lot of us feel, feel like it's our time. Yeah. Like we we want to get our message across. And I mean, obviously I think we all care to a certain extent. Yeah. We, we all want to fit in. So we all care yeah. like to a certain extent of what people think. Yeah. Um, but it's become a little bit more, um, I guess we say like more liberal yeah. the way that. I definitely, I think we're much more open-minded. I mean, I see this actually in my, my role as a rabbi's wife. My husband is a rabbi and, um, and one thing I see a lot within the rabbinate amongst rabbis and also amongst rabbis' wives is that generationally there's a big shift. There's a much more open-mindedness and sensitivity to sort of controversial issues that 20 years ago were like taboo. Um, and and I it, make, it really gives me hope. Like I really I really feel optimistic about the future because I just see what you know, for example, what my husband and what he's discussing with his you know, sort of peer colleagues at other synagogues has big challenges um, in communal life and how we need to respond. It's a totally different response from rabbis even, you know, in their 40s, right? Uh, it's not such a big age difference, but but it's enough that you have a different perspective. And I think in general, our generation is one that says we're not happy with the status quo and we're not happy to just sort of go along with it. We're you know, we we are as much as we're a religious community, we're very much influenced by outside, I think, culture and the culture of social activism has, you know, seeped into the community a little bit. We saw that a lot with the protests around Aguno, right? The women who are chained to dead marriages because their husbands won't give them religious bills of divorce. Uh, those sorts of protests were they happen, they for sure happen from time to time, but the the, te- the temper with which they were happening, the heat of them is something I think new. And that is a product of a generation that is more socially aware, more concerned about injustice, and also more online. For sure. Yes. There has been a lot of, of publicity recently based on, you know, a show and it really, it's true that it's not the first time this has happened yeah. regarding people leaving the Orthodox community. And yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that and about your message that you would give to the Jewish community and also your message that you would give to the secular community or the American society in general. 
That's a really great question because you're right. Those are two different answers, um, I think, or two different questions. So I think regarding the Orthodox community, um, I actually posted about this on Instagram. My biggest takeaway from this whole scandal is that um, it's not just about corporations seeking sensationalism. I think the show and the others around it, and I've written about it before, uh, I think they symbolize essentially our inability to foster a creative class, which goes back to your point earlier about women not being able to pursue all their passions or whatever. I think we as a community have just not invested the resources that we need to into creating free and independent art, creativity, uh, you know, writing, screenwriting, filmmaking, all these sorts of things. Uh, we don't have that because real art requires a certain level of, um, you know, exposure, permissiveness, honesty, rawness. And that's just not something we do in the community, right? We're very, very protective over the status quo and what is permitted and what is not permitted, I would say, to an extreme. Um, you know, one woman wrote to me recently saying, she commented on actually on this post saying that she's a children's book writer and she tried to, she was publishing a book, she, she was pitching a book to Orthodox book publishers and the book had something to do with a matzo ball soup. And the fact that it had matzo balls in it, um, you know, there's some, some Jews don't eat matzo balls on Passover for complicated reasons. They think it's not like 100%. Basically, it could be problematic in terms of kashrut, you know, the kosherness of it on Passover specifically. So they will not eat matzo balls. Um, and the fact that she even mentioned this sort of somehow the book was around the matzo ball soup. And the fact that she even talked about that dish rendered the whole book like not good enough for the publisher. Um, so we have such strict rules, right? Our publications don't allow pictures of women, right? Our publications do not allow any real thoughtful critique of, of anything in communal life, right? And if any, and if there ever is a quote unquote critique, it's usually something 10 years, like that was a hot topic maybe 10 years ago. And now suddenly we feel like we can maybe talk about it. And I think that's a problem because as we said, you know, the younger generation is looking for something else. And this is really to art as well. If we want to be able to say to the Netflixes of the world, you know, that's not our story. Here is right. And I don't want to, I don't want to um, put down someone's story. Everyone does have the right to tell their story, but we are not offering any counter narrative, right? We're not giving any other stories to the wider world, whether in literature, whether in, in film, right? We're just not, we're just, we don't create that, creativity and it's not because we don't have talent we have brilliant talent in our community we're just not cultivating it the way we should we're not educating people we're not giving people the tools to be able to take their talents and fly with them um i would love to be able to see orthodox filmmakers you know telling their stories right there is one paula eisel who created a brilliant documentary called 93 clean but she's like really a unique individual in that um and and she had to you know go the hard route the way that i did in media uh, I would love to be able to see a creative class created within our community. And to my mind, I think that's what this is really all about. It's not about, you know, which narratives are told, which aren't, which aren't. It's just that we need to be able to say that we have a multitude of stories of religious people who are living in religious communities who have fascinating human 
you know, lives and conflicts and struggles like any other human being on this planet. Uh, and to be able to talk about it from inside the community, but also honestly, is going to be the thing that will, I believe, change this whole scenario. So that's my <laughs> long message to the, you know, community. I think in terms of the wider world, uh, you could probably imagine my message is that not everything is about an escape narrative. I think secular people like to listen to read, you know, watch stories about escapes from any sorts of quote-unquote cults uh, because it validates their Western view of the world um, and their set of values and morals. Uh, it's definitely not only that the Orthodox, we see this, these stories being told about religious Muslims, about the Amish, about Mormons. Um, you know, the book Educated was a huge bestseller for this reason. Uh, people enjoy being validated in their own biases. And reality is that that is not everyone's story. Um, and that there are actually, yeah, many religious, intelligent people who lead morally upright lives who are doing so by choice. Um, and I think secular consumers need to understand, need to see their own biases in, in consuming this sort of stuff and in buying this sort of stuff, right? Um, executives choosing to invest in this sort of content, I think shows that, that bias, uh, the validation that they're seeking. And I believe that that validation needs to be countered. Right. Wow. Yeah. I knew you were the perfect person to ask this to. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And I, I guess going along the same lines, after the show came out, a lot of Orthodox women were posting about like the opposite, kind of mm -hmm. like becoming Orthodox or whatever. And I saw that you did not do that. I didn't do that either. How did you feel about about all those posts? Ooh, um, listen, I think, as I said, everyone has the right to tell their story. And I think there was great value and people, you know, expressing their pride in their identities. Um, the reason I personally did not choose to do that is because I, as a journalist and also as a rabbi's wife, encounter a lot of, a lot of suffering in the community as well. Um, and I, I'm too attuned to it to be able to say, well, my Orthodox life is perfect. Um, thankfully, actually, thank God, I have, I am so grateful. I am, I've had so far a beautiful, happy life. I'm married to the love of my life. I have two beautiful children. I have nothing to complain about. Um, I really feel in many, many, many ways privileged. Um, but I know that there are many who are, who are not and who, who go through a lot of systemic, uh, I would say, suffering. Um, so, so seeing that and being up close to it makes me very wary about saying that everything is great in our community. I don't think these women meant to say that. I think he meant to just say, well, this is an alternative story. Um, I think what they, you know, it almost felt like they're trying to show, quote unquote, show Netflix that you see, you know, I am an amazing Orthodox woman and I do a million things and I am happily religious and all that. But someone who is a professional storyteller will tell you, I will tell you that that's not really what's going to be interesting, particularly to a filmmaker um, or a reporter or whatever. Um, so... So that was actually why I posted about this whole question of storytelling. Well, the stories that we do tell and how we need to be able to learn how to tell stories that are not obsessed with PR. 
I think we as a community are often conditioned to think that everything is about good PR. Um, and right. I mean, since we're children, we're told, you know, you're going to the zoo, you know, be on your best behavior because you have to make a kiddish Hashem, right? You have to sanctify God's name. And that's, that's great. That's right. That's wonderful. But it, it, it becomes a sort of a way of being to an extent. I don't think that's always true, but you know, we're very worried about our PR always to such an extreme degree that we even tell ourselves our own PR stories, right? If you consume any sort of orthodox content, am I wrong? Like if you read anything or like you watch the videos, any content within our community, it's always about how we are the best and we've figured it all out and we know all the answers. And, you know, there's never a sort of real thoughtful deep probing about like, well, you know, there are some issues. Yeah, we have some issues that we really need to deal with. Um, we have, unfortunately, we have criminals. We have corruption. We have all the problems that plague any human society. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that we are so busy with telling ourselves these fairy tales about ourselves that we start, we not, not only eat them, we tell, we, we just spit them right back to other people. And, I think it's natural. I think this is, again, I don't think this is necessarily unique to any community. I think a community that sort of feels besieged, there's rising anti-Semitism, there are a lot of other concerns that people are thinking about kind of under the surface, but it does worry me, right? Because we're not, you know, we're not really looking clearly, I think, at some of the problems that that are really right in front of us and that need attention. Um, so that was why I decided not to close about it. I really did think about it though. Um I am so happily and passionately observant and you know I, I love being a religious woman. I, I really I love many aspects of traditional roles. Um it's but at the same time like there there is pain and I think I think we, we can't whitewash it. We can't ignore it. Um and I think another thing that was interesting was that I heard, I, I felt like a lot of the women who were posting were women who sort of became religious at one, like later on in life or like as, as they were growing up, actually similar to me, um, sort of like went on these religious journeys, but I didn't see as much as many, at least, or maybe my feed is just self-selected, but I didn't really see that many posts from people who grew up like straight from birth religious. I did. I felt like people were kind of quiet there. Um, I don't know if that's true. I didn't do a survey, but um, often I find that people who are sort of newcomers come with a lot of passion and rosy-eyed glasses, which is really beautiful, but at the same time, you know, don't necessarily always see things super clearly. For sure. Yes. Um, I've, I've seen that. I definitely, now that you're mentioning it, I'm thinking back to the post that I, that I saw. Um, and I think I saw the same thing for the most part. I, I think that first of all, when it comes to the like religion in general, our religion is beautiful and there are so many wonderful parts to it and different aspects. And I think that the, that the, the part that's difficult for people is never about the religion. It's about the culture. It's about people, it's humans. It's, it's, it's the way we interpret, you know, divine law. There's a, an amazing um, midrash. There's a beautiful text on the story of the daughters of Kalef Chad, uh, which I'll try to translate. But um, basically the story is five sisters approach Moses in the desert and they say, you know, 
their father just died and they want to be able to inherit a piece of the land, right? Their, their father's inheritance. And until that moment, land inheritance only went to sons. And if someone died without sons, a man died without sons, that land, that whole inheritance was lost. And they said, they argued, our fathers did not leave sons behind. Let us inherit the land. And Moses does not know what to do, right? And God says they speak correctly, give them that land. And the Midrash, the, the commentary on that, the, you know, the sort of Agatha tradition says, um, you know, that God is not like flesh and blood because flesh and blood often prioritizes, often sympathizes more with men over women. But God in his something like in his, you know, the merciful God sees men and women equally. And I think of that text a lot in the context of the work that I do, where, you know, sometimes I'm really frustrated and I don't, you know, it's not God. It's, it's people, it's human interpretation, right? Um, often there's a decent amount of, I think, ego and ambition tied into things too. Um, but I think we, we have to be very, right, very, as you said, very uh, careful to distinguish between what is religion and what is what is godly and versus what is, I think, tainted sometimes by humans. Right. And it's important to really kind of try to undo any unhealthy mindsets that come from cultural aspects, which kind of sounds like you did that by going into journalism, like the PR situation, as, as you mentioned, we do grow up with it constantly being about what other people are thinking yeah. and what other people see and we're, like what schools are going to get our kids into. So we have to dress a certain way. And then when it comes to dating, we want to find a marriage partner who's going to date us if we do X, Y, and Z, you know, even for me, I mean, in the culture that I grew up in, it was very, very right-winged, even having an Instagram account was really not so typical and then now it's more typical yeah. but at the time like putting my face out there wasn't considered modest right. you know what I mean uh-huh. I decided that that's who I am and I'm still religious and um, I'm going to take the aspects that resonate with me and still be um, a religious Jew yeah sure and that sounds like something that you did in the in the journalist world which you mentioned that you had to overcome some hurdles so could you talk about those hurdles Sure. So um, I started off writing uh, my sort of quote unquote breakthrough article that kind of kind of set me on my path was in Tablet Magazine. Uh, I was 20 years old and it was an essay about the way that the community often overemphasized women's modesty and specifically um not so much even modesty, but like what I called stringency culture, like how we're so as you said, we're so worried about what other people think and we're always trying to show one another how religious we are, how, you know, super stringent we are. Like, you know, my tights are this thick and I don't, you know, I only eat by this kashrut certification. and This is how, you know, much I pray or learn every day. There's a lot of sort of one-upmanship, I think. Um, and that was definitely true for me, uh, you know, in high school where there was, that was like where the competition was, I would say even more than in academics. It was like a religious growth. Uh, which can be toxic sometimes, right? Like religious should not, religion should not be about like looking over your shoulder to compare yourself to someone else. It's you and God. Um, so I wrote this very fiery essay at age 20 called Tight Squeeze, if you want to Google it. Um, I would, I would probably have written it very differently at this age, but the 
the central message I would definitely stand by to this day. Um, and that piece kind of went viral. Uh, I blew up that back when articles went viral on Facebook and people were commenting and sharing and messaging me constantly. It was a very hot topic at that time because there was um, riots at the time in Israel about women's, about schoolgirls' modesty in the city of Beit Shemesh. So uh, it was a very sort of heated time. And uh, and the piece was, you know, I definitely got a lot of pushback from people in my real life, not people online, but, um, you know, teachers and rabbis would call me and say, what are you doing? You're never going to get married. Um, and I think that kind of, that hanging over my head, that the, the fear that I would never find myself in the religious community. Again, remember, I'm not coming from like a very religious family. I'm not coming from a pedigree. I'm not coming from money. I'm really sort of someone in the margins. And to know that I have a lot of stake was a very kind of terrifying moment. Um, but I ended up writing anyways, um, because that was just me. <laughs> so I, I wrote, you know, quite a bit. I wrote, um, I had a piece in the New York Times when I was 21 about dating as a religious girl. Um, religious woman, I would say, a strong religious woman. Um, and then I started writing for Haaretz pretty much soon after that. And, and there I wrote a lot about my dating life. I wrote about what it's like to be single. I wrote about, you know, I did a lot of reporting as well, obviously, but I, in the sort of the more viral pieces were those that went, were really personal and went deep. Um, and it was very, it was exposing, but at the same time, I was sort of like unpacking all these questions through the process of dating and through the process of constantly looking at myself from outside, right? As you said, that we're always looking over each other, our shoulders. Um, you know, what does that mean? And coming from a Russian background, coming from a not religious background and that feeling of being an outsider and, you know, feel, being a woman, feeling sort of vulnerable in many ways. Uh, so I, those are things that throughout my work and um, in terms of hurdles, it was definitely worrisome because I just thought I would never find love, really, because, you know, so much of the dating system here is, you know, like you have to be set up by the right people and introduced to the right people and you have to have a network. And here I was writing my thoughts for the world to see um, in a way that felt very risky. Uh, but at the same time, I also understood that it was a good filter for me because I realized like, well, if a guy doesn't want, you know, a woman with her own mind and like, I'm not interested in him, like let someone read my work and decide whether they want to go out with me or not. Um, and it worked. I mean, it worked. I ended up being set up with my husband, I think, uh, largely because, yeah, because of my work, because my writing spoke for itself and people were sort of talking about me and, um, and it, you know, kind of came back to him and he was like, well, she seems interesting and different. Um, and he coming from a very different world. He was coming from a very, like, a rabbinic, illustrious family. Um, he, as I said, a rabbi himself and he went to like, you know, these top yeshivas, just a very different world from where I was coming from. But, um, you know, we, thank God we got married and about seven years ago and now I'm a rabbi's wife. So the hurdle previously for me was being single. And then the moment I was married, then I was a rabbi's wife, which also comes with his own challenges in being a writer and sort of a voice publicly because I constantly have to kind of keep in mind that 
you know, I have a wonderful community and, you know, to sort of tread carefully there, but also my husband's rabbinic career, right? Uh, we might disagree on something. What do we do then? There are like a lot of other questions that come up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of, of the fact that your husband's a rabbi mm-hmm. and you're writing about these topics. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really complicated. In the beginning of our marriage, it was a very sore topic. Like it was, it was not easy. I think it took us years in maturity to sort of come to a point where we're like, I'm really on the same page. But in the beginning, it was like, you know, it was, it took time for him to get used to it. He was coming from a very sort of typical, you know, Haredi community where that is, um, you know, that's just not something you do. <laughs> you're not like, you're not supposed to be outspoken unless it's you're outspoken about PR for the community, right? Um, so, it, it took him years to really get used to that. Um, now it's kind of funny because now I feel like he's even more, he pushes me to be more outgoing than I, even I want, like, plan to be. Like, he's sometimes like, you should have jumped on that. You should have said something about this. This is crazy, you know? And I'm like, what? Like, a few years ago, you would have been like, can you just be a little quieter? You know, and now he's really sort of, um, you know, my biggest supporter and cheerleader, thank God. Um yeah, so different hurdles, uh, but at the same time, I really believe that when you're writing from within the community, it's challenging, but at the same time, it's been a very important exercise in accountability that is and in compassion, right? Meaning a, a secular journalist writing on orthodox issues, first of all, may not understand something fully, but then secondly, they will go on and, you know, they file the story and then they go out for drinks with their friends and that's it and they file the story. Right. For me, I file a story and then I see people I write about at a wedding the next night. Right. There's much more. It's much closer to me. Um, but that's what keeps me also accountable because I know that I have to stand behind every single word I put out there. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never thought of that. But of course, being a part of the community and at the same time writing about these issues or challenges or whatever it is definitely gives you a very unique perspective. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely a different perspective. I mean, a lot of the stories that come to me, I think, um, are inspired or sparked by something that I hear or see of as a rabbi's wife. Um, and sometimes I think people also, you know, feel comfortable reaching out to me or talking to me because they feel like, you know, I don't know, I guess they, they feel like a rabbi's wife is someone like a confidant or something. Um so even like like from way not in my own community, but like people literally from different religious communities reach out to me with with a story idea or with a question or with with request for help even um, because they feel like you know there's that connection. Um, I mean, I try my best to like you know be there for people, but uh, it's it's interesting. It definitely gives me a different perspective, and I think it also gives me a different perspective on the way rabbinic politics works, the way community life is structured, um, like our all of our power structures within the community. Like I was someone who was very much outside of it growing up and then I kind of married into it in a way. And that has definitely been an interesting experience. For sure. Yeah, because that, that adds even more of an interesting experience because you literally like evolved with the religion and then you ended up marrying into it even more yep. so yeah that's that's so interesting so how did you you know ex- i guess shift your mindset to be able to 
to really get into journalism full force in the secular community, even while being an Orthodox Jewish woman? Did, did it take work or did it kind of just evolve naturally? It was, I think it was pretty natural. I mean, I'll put one, I'll say one thing, you know, the road to success is paved with many, many disappointments. So for, you know, people will be like, oh, look at you, you're successful, you're this and that. And I'm like, you don't see the dozens and dozens of emails and rejections and disappointments and unanswered emails and, you know, um, failed interviews and all that. So there's definitely, um, effort is a big, um, is, is, is a huge part of it. Um, I always threw myself into it. I mean, I, I'm the type of person, like, what is it? You reach for the moon and you land among the stars. That's sort of what I try to do. Um, and sometimes it works, thank God. So the way that sort of every step so far of my career happened was very much through, I would say, cold pitches. Like I had zero context, zero network in journalism and media and publishing, nothing. Um, and everything was like really like grit, you know, just saying, okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, you know, I had a piece last week in Business Insider uh, about working motherhood and people were contacting me saying, oh, congratulations. It's a great byline, this and that. And I was like, you don't even know. It took me 29 rejections to get to this application, right? I had 29 editors either reject or ignore it, but it's, you know, you have to keep trying. So um, so there's a lot of effort, but it's, and at the same time, kind of this really like God's hand, I feel like in every step, step of the way, like, I don't know if naturally is the right word to say, but, um, you know, things kind of happened the way they did. Um, and, you know, I think also it happens to be a good time where people are sort of like kind of intrigued and by the idea of like an Orthodox journalist, um, someone sort of by the community who knows how to, really kind of you know, one thing I try to do at least is to capture the community as an insider, but at the same time translate it for a secular reader. So the secular reader can read it and access it just as well as a religious person can read it and recognize themselves in it. Yeah, that's really nice. And you've definitely obviously done a fantastic job of that. It's so interesting that you mentioned about the rejection aspect because that's a really important point that people mm-hmm. don't realize yeah. that things don't no one's an overnight success. There's no such thing. Nope. And if they are, then they're not telling you a whole story, you know? Right, right. And it's so, so how does it work then? Because as a journalist, so you have an idea and then you pitch it to editors? So I'll tell you, like my first, really every, pretty much every single essay or report that I've pitched has been cold, meaning I did not know the editor. I did a lot of research about the editor, found their emails you know, figured out which editor is the right person to contact. Um, I landed this essay at the Times when I was 21, literally through a cold pitch. Um, so it, it takes a lot of research and also like you learn as you go sort of in savviness and trying to figure out who's an editor that's more willing, that might be more inclined towards it. Like, for example, I had a piece, this well, it actually came out yesterday in Tishabov on, uh, on an Israeli uh an incredible Israeli Orthodox woman who's the chief of was the chief of staff for the uh previous president of Israel. She's a mother of twelve. She's like a very prominent kind of like backroom player in Israeli politics. Uh and the profile it was a profile of her and it talks about her political future, whether she has a political future given that she um 
lives in a community which actually does not allow women to run in its own political party. So she wants to run for office, but she can't because she's a woman. And at the same time, she is passionately, you know, orthodox and identifies with this community in that tension, that struggle uh, that goes on there. So I was pitching the piece and I thought, you know, what editor should I contact? And then I realized there was an editor, you know, at foreign policy that had actually been stationed in Israel um, for some years. You know, this is a lot of research. And I realized maybe if, you know, if they were stationed in Israel, they might have sort of more interest in this because that's something that they know. Um, and, and I bet correctly, apparently. So it's sort of those types of little things where you learn to be able to figure out who's the right editor, um, right, what pitch format works, what makes a story a story, what makes something, you know, a real conflict. Um, those are, those are things you learn with time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've improved over the years. It's not easy, but it's, there's a lot of adrenaline and you also have to be very self-motivated and also very disciplined. So like I have a spreadsheet of, you know, what my stories are, where I'm pitching them, where I'm placing them, um, progress, right. When did I pitch it? Did I follow up? Was there a response? Like I literally catalog everything very closely. Wow. Once you have an editor though, do you keep going to that editor or you switch? That's a great question. Yeah. Generally, if you want to keep going back to that publication, that's what you do. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So, I mean, it's a, so it, it's like a lot of work to get to that editor, but like once you've got to that editor, like you have, okay, cool. Cause that would be such a pain. Cause you have like every single time needing to no, find no. a new editor. Yeah, no, no, no. It's all about relationships <laughs> as all things are. So, um, you know, it's hard to do it on your own. But once you have a foot in the door, if you've had a good experience working with someone on a story, uh, they tend to be pretty open to it. I mean, I was an editor at the forward for almost four years, and I saw how that was on the editor side, you know, building relations with writers when there was like a writer who did really good job, turned around well, you know, didn't require a lot of editing work. It was like anytime they did something, it would be like, yes, please, please, please. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. Like behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of last questions. The first thing that I would love to know is what advice would you would you give to girls and women who want to enter the world of journalism or even the creative media world? Hmm. Um, the first thing that I always say is even more important, I believe, than an internship is to have clips, to have a portfolio of writing out there. Um, you can start with a university paper, but, you know, work your way up, really sort of go through this not easy. It's certainly an arduous process of pitching editors, coming up with story ideas, building relationships, building a social media presence. All editors want to see that for better or for worse. Um, you know, journalism tends to be more focused on Twitter. Uh, if you have slightly different focus, if you're sort of more interested in fashion or art journalism, maybe Instagram is the place as well. Depends on the niche you're looking for, but um, you want to really build up your portfolio to be able to say, my work has appeared in X, Y, and Z. Uh, that tends to say the most about you more than any, anything else, I would say. Um, yeah, and then I would say it's, it's building a portfolio, building a social media presence, not giving up, and also figuring out what your niche is, what your beat is. It's hard to do when you're first starting out. It takes some years to figure out like what what you really want to be writing about. Uh, I can't say that initially when I started studying journalism that I thought you know Orthodox community life would be my beat. Uh, it took me I think years and 
a lot of lived experience to be able to say, wow, this is like something I, you know, I really want to write about because I think there's this gap and I'm really passionate about it. Um, so yeah, so it takes years to figure that out, but start being aware of that question, that question of what's your niche, what's your beat, what is the thing that only you can do so well? Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone, which is, what is something that you hope the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? Oh my gosh, only one thing. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say something, but it's really a broad answer. Um, I hope women are not going to have to struggle with being voiceless. I think specifically in religious communities, um, women are still unheard. And we're just not taken seriously um, by, I would say, large swaths of quote unquote leadership. Um, people don't take our fears and our pains and our concerns seriously. Um, and you see that on all top, on all issues. You see that on agunas, as I mentioned earlier, on abuse, on um, on erasure of women, those are sorts of the more egregious issues, but obviously on the more sort of day to day, right? Um, you know, synagogue life, women are not taken seriously. Our sort of our experiences, our comfort with the way that the space is set up and designed, right? Um, access to the women's side can be complicated. All those sorts of questions often appear and, um, when women speak up, they're often sort of dismissed. Uh, and it's crazy to say that in 2021, I, I really can't believe I'm saying this. I feel like if you had asked me a few years ago, I would have been like, nah, that's, you know, we're, we're what do you mean? We're empowered. But um, I think we, we have a lot of work left ahead of us. And I just really hope that that, that changes soon. Me too. Yes. And it really goes along with your whole like vibe and everything that you stand for, because that's what you're doing now. You're empowering people and, you know. Being a voice. So Hi. I love that. Thank you. Avital, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Avital Rachel, and also on Twitter as Avital Rachel. Uh, I share all my work and not all my thoughts, but some of my thoughts on those platforms. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Avital, for joining me today. This is so nice to get to know you and hear your opinions about things. And you're such an inspiration for women everywhere, really. So I appreciate it. You're very kind. Thank you so much, Nahami, for having me. It was really a pleasure. That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 